Well, this morning, um, I'm on vacation, and I'm passing the baton. Um, this morning, Brian Blummer from First Reformed Church in Lansing will be preaching. And Brian is a relatively new friend, I would say. Over the past few years, uh, Brian has come under the care of what's called the Classis of Ileana. And for you, you're going, did he mispronounce Classis? Classes? Classis is a group of regional churches from northwest Indiana, Illinois, and I think as far as, oh yeah, Florida now. Yeah, so it's regional. Um, And he is... Uh, pursuing becoming a minister of word and sacrament in the Reformed Church in America. So that means he comes under the care of the classes, the regional churches. And he has finished up his his seminary work at Mid-America Seminary in Dyer, right? It's in Dyer. So he has finished up that, but he has a little bit more stuff to make sure that he is doctrinally cleansed and fit for ministry in the Reformed Church in America. Uh, He is a fellow brother in Christ. He is... Uh, a colleague in um, working together for reform and restoration and just seeing renewal take place in the Reformed Church in America by uh, being a part of RCA Integrity. He's also just a great guy. So this morning he will be preaching our second uh, piece from Zachariah's song from Luke chapter 1. And... uh, I'm going to pray for him real quick, like, before I just totally hand everything off. So I invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word this morning to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, the first chapter. And we'll begin reading at verse 57, but we'll focus in particular on some verses from Zechariah's song. And you can find this on pages 856-57 of your Bibles. Luke 1, beginning at verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant 
the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sun shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance, until his ordination to Israel. So far, the reading of God's word. May he bless it as he works it in our lives. Pray with me, would you? Father, we realize in this moment what a great responsibility and task to open up your word for your people. And yet, in this moment, we also realize what a delight it is to sit under your word, to hear you speak to us, even now by the power of your Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit that prophesied through your servant, Zechariah, and now speaks to us as well in the prophetic office of preaching. Lord, may we delight in that word. And even as we enjoy the Lord's Supper later in this service, we ask that you would feed us by the preaching of the word. That you would give us the pure milk of the spiritual word. Lord, step me aside and may you be at the front of this time. May we honor and glorify you in this, we ask. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, in whose great name we pray. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, I wonder where those of us who are parents take our delight and our satisfaction this morning in bringing up our children. With Zechariah, that delight that he took from his son John was clear and apparent. And he praises God for giving him a son who would make the Savior famous. A son to make the Savior famous. And I wonder, as we consider our own children or the children that we may have one day, the children under our care, I wonder if we look at them in the same way. Now, I confess that I am not a parent this morning. But I wonder... Boy, I'm all tangled up here. There we go. Much better. I'm not a parent, but I wonder if it's still a little bit like the Dick Van Dyke show. Men, your wives go into labor... You're in the waiting room with your suit, your tie, your fedora. You're pacing back and forth, chewing on your cigar, when all of a sudden the nurse comes to the window and she says, Congratulations, it's a healthy new boy. 
And in that split moment, when this announcement comes to you, where do your thoughts go? And moms, the question comes to you as well. In that split moment, where do your hopes and dreams start to take shape for the life of that child? Is it in the high grades that you're expecting? Or is it in the star career or the fancy stock portfolio? Is it in the star athlete you're expecting to make that star catch in the senior homecoming game? In that moment, where do your thoughts go? And where do you place your delight? Would that our delight would be in the knowledge that each of our children, boy or girl, would live to make the Savior famous. That no matter where they are or what they do, their chief purpose, their chief goal, would be to make much of Jesus Christ. To declare His gospel. And to place themselves in His service and in His work. And then above all the grades and careers and star athlete stories, we would have all the reason to praise God with Zechariah, to sing, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, because He has shown His favor on our, child, on our children. That is where, Lord willing, I will be someday as a parent. So as we go about our study of Zechariah's song this morning, I want to use our passage to answer and unpack three questions that our text gives us. And we're going to do this by focusing our attention on just one portion, one small portion of Zechariah's song. The two verses of his song at, Zechariah's, at John's birth where Zechariah focuses on John. Verses 76 through 79. Zechariah's full song is a celebration of God's continuing plan for Israel. But in verses 76 to 79, he focuses particularly on God's plan through the life of John. And the three questions we answer, John being called the prophet of the Most High. Three questions. Question number one, why was John born? And what was his mission, even from birth? And question two, what initiated John's calling in the first place? What was it that led to John's calling from the very beginning? And then the third question we'll consider is what return would follow from John's work? What result would become of John's work? And each of these questions we'll consider together in short order this morning. And so the first question has to do with the particulars of John's mission from birth. Why was he born? And what tasks was he to be about? And Zechariah's prophecy by the Spirit tells us what this mission is. Look at verses 76 and 77. It'll be on the screen here. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. Two things are expected here of John. Preparing the Lord's ways 
and giving knowledge of salvation to the Lord's people. John's mission and task will give him prominence, but it will also keep him subordinate as one whose job it is to point forward, to point beyond himself to the Lord. As parents, may we also encourage and allow our children to do the same, to point beyond themselves to our great Savior. John is going to be a preparer of the Lord's ways, a preparer for the Lord's visit to his people. In that way, John is going to be a front runner to the Lord Jesus, but never will he be at the front. John's going to be a herald announcing the arrival of the kingdom, but he's going to be a citizen of the kingdom and never its king. Remember that then, when our biggest dreams for our child would be to live to see our child as the president of the United States. And what would that tell us about what we value most? You and I, friends, are only ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're those whose only mission is to go out and to work out our Lord's prerogatives, to make Him famous. And we're only traitors and damnable rebels if we would try to take our King's place to suit our own ways, our own glory. And we're derelict in our duty if we make anything but our King's concerns our first priority. But we're our King's ambassadors, his subordinates. And our job in the world is to represent his will in all that we say and do. And Zechariah makes clear what the king's will and way is for the task of John. John is to prepare the Lord's ways in a way that would give knowledge of salvation to the Lord's people. John is not preparing for the Lord in just any way that he would prefer, but he must prepare in a way that would tie into the Lord's plan for so great a salvation. Through John's work, the people must be ready to know and understand and experience the great appearing of the Messiah when he arrives in flesh, in a manger, to finish his work. Even at the manger... The people must be prepared because of the ministry of John. He comes to give knowledge of salvation. And this knowledge is no more limited to the mind for John as it was for us. But this salvation must be a very real part of our experience of the Messiah. The knowledge must move beyond our mind, under our shoulders, and into our heart. It has to be more than just a mechanism of our brain that allows us to spout off different truths about the gospel and the doctrines of grace. But the knowledge and the understanding must take at the center of our being. It has to shape and fashion everything about us after the ways of our Redeemer. You know, some of the best advice I was ever given came after a set of exams that I took for classes. And what this advice told me was to be a pastor when I was giving answers to tough theological questions. Don't try to impress with a bunch of book knowledge, but let the truth pass through your life 
and let it speak to God's people. That's good advice for the believer. And it's exactly what's required of John as the Lord's chief prophet. Let the truth pass through you and into your experience. John's chief ministry would be among the people of Israel. And he was not to come before them in order to fill with a bunch of head knowledge about the ways of the Messiah. But he was to minister among them in a way that the Spirit would use to fashion their lives of faith. It was knowledge that would bend the knee, bowing to King Jesus and to his ways. You see, Pharisees and Sadducees, they had the head knowledge. But John was charged to move this knowledge in the direction of saving faith. Friends, our, our knowledge must move beyond itself, and it must take us into worship. If the ministry of John Piper leaves us with nothing else one day, it's going to be Piper's stress that worship is the chief part of our salvation. Worship is what we do as believers. Just hear him as he considers the aim of Christian missions. Piper writes, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship does not. Worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate, not man. When the age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity. But worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and the goal of missions, Piper continues. It's the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the people and the greatness of God. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Does ministry move us in that way? When we come out of church each Sunday, where do our thoughts and our conversations take us? May we be moved to total worship and awe for having met with the Lord in the splendor of His grace. May we rejoice for seeing His grace and His salvation at work in the lives of His people in the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. Our knowledge of salvation has got to move the church. Visible signs of our delight. I'm Dutch. I know this. Visible signs of our delight in God's grace is not just for those Baptists. But it's for the church. And if Calvinism is caught up in dull and boring head knowledge, then let us cast Calvinism into the pit of hell where it belongs. But if Calvinism is what I know it to be, then we had better be alive and active and full of vitality. Our God is at work in giving us himself, and that ought to move us to life. So John is here to prepare us to experience the way of salvation. And what we find is that forgiveness is the object of that salvation. You cannot experience 
the salvation of Christ without also enjoying Christ's forgiveness. Christ is inextricably fused His salvation to His forgiveness, His cancellation of our debt and penalty. If our sin is tying us down and sinking us into the depths of hell, then salvation comes with a word of forgiveness. And it picks us up and puts us back in that righteousness secured by our Savior. You cannot experience salvation without forgiveness. It's just not possible because you are not saved unless you're forgiven. Each of us is doomed if we would think that we're saved apart from forgiveness, as if we didn't need to be forgiven before a holy God. But salvation and forgiveness are joined together in one great package. And John's mission to Israel, to the church, shows that. So all this answers what John was given to do in his ministry as the Lord's prophet. That's our first question. And now we must ask what it was that led to John's calling in the first place. What initiated John's mission? And Zechariah, by the Holy Spirit, again gives us an answer to this question in verse 78. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High because of the tender mercy of our God. In considering this passage, Charles Spurgeon places this verse in the center of the text message for us. Spurgeon points out that the Greek locates these mercies of God in the very heart of God's being. And so Spurgeon sings the praises of these mercies. Mercy is of the divine essence, he writes. There is no God apart from his heart, and mercy lies in the heart of God. He has bound up his mercy with his existence. As surely as God lives, he will grant remission of sins to those who turn unto him. Remission of sins is a business into which the Lord throws his whole heart. He forgives with an intensity of will and readiness of soul. God made heaven and earth with his fingers, but he gave his son with his heart in order that he might save sinners. The eternal God has thrown his whole soul into the business of redeeming men. If you desire to see God most godlike, it is in the pardon of sin and the saving of men. If you desire to read the character of God written out in capital letters, you must study the visitation of His love in the person of His dear Son and all the wonderful works of infinite grace which spring therefrom. It is a grand sight to behold God in earnest when He says, Now will I arise. With awe we watch Him as He lays bare His arm. But this full energy of power is best seen when His work is grace. It is not only tenderness, but intensity, hardiness, eagerness, delight, and concentration of power. All this is to be seen in the dealing of God with guilty men when He visits them to grant them remission of sins. John's mission flowed to us out of the great and tender mercy of God. 
But do we know God with such a tenderness? A family at First Lansing watches their two-year-old boy endure the last six months in intensive care. And they wonder, where was God's mercy all that time? Another family struggles day in and day out, barely to put a roof over themselves as the winter starts to set in here. And they wonder, where is God's loving kindness in the midst of all the hard struggle? But if we fail to find God in His tenderness, it's not because God's character has changed. Rather, our failure to know God's mercy is a failure of our acknowledgement. And it ought to drive us to find God as He is in His tenderness and in His mercy. Only God's child will know the blessedness of God's tender mercy. And others will only experience what Spurgeon calls that strong arm laid bare. The lack of God's tenderness in our lives is not because God is not tender. Rather, we need to seek Him and find Him as tender. But nowhere, of course, does God's tenderness ever guarantee us from seeing real hardship and struggle in our lives. But instead, it flavors how we take these hardships and endure through them. And if nothing else, God's tenderness toward His children ought to encourage us as we walk through difficulties. For by His tenderness, He keeps Himself near to us. And He ordains nothing for us that His grace will not overcome either in this life or in the next. God's mercies are what drove Him to send John ahead of the ministry of Jesus. In our sin, we had sunk ourselves into the worst hardships imaginable. And what's worse, we contented ourselves with that predicament. We contented ourselves in our sin, in our hardness of heart. But Paul assures us, God shows His love that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or there's the great hymn, And Can It Be That I Should Gain. And in the third stanza, there's this assurance to hardened sinners. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. If you want to know the sweet and incredible mercies of God, then by all means, point your eyes to the man who came in flesh in order to go to the grave. Look at the Christ who took on our guilt and shame even while we hated Him and spit on Him. If you want to know God's tenderest mercy for you, then look to the Savior child who willingly came to the manger on Advent 
in order to face the cross and the crushing blow of Good Friday. This is why John had to come. In order to open our blind eyes and hardened hearts unto the merciful way of salvation that was in Jesus, the Messiah of God. Jews in Jerusalem would kill John for showing this great mercy this way, just as our own sin would hang our Savior. But praise be to God that God would stay resilient with us. And in His mercy, He would raise the Savior three days later and identify us into that death and new life. God did not leave us to ourselves in the condemnation we deserved as traitors and rebels against Him. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We are not left to ourselves because that would mean our death as traitors. But we're graciously saved through nothing that is of ourselves. And John was one who would carry out the Lord's ministry of mercy. And so that ministry comes among us and continues among us as the Spirit meets with us and visits us in the Word. John held a unique place in preparing the hearts of men, but that preparation still goes on even now. As believers continue to gather like we are to hear the Word of grace preached and administered to them. In a moment... We're going to come to sit together around the Lord's table. But how else will we do that unless we come by mercy? We who were once intent on overturning the table and all of its meaning, who would do away with all of the table altogether, how is it now that we find an invitation waiting to find a joy to come together to be fed by that spiritual food of Christ? But all of this, as we do this, is nothing but divine mercy. Nothing of ourselves. So that we find ourselves graciously received to the Lord's fellowship. And so John's reason for his mission extends from the eternal plan of God's mercy. That's our second question. And then third and finally... What results come from John's work? And the answer to this is that out of John's mission, God visits us. See how Zechariah notes this visit with distinctly messianic language. Verses 78 and 79. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, whereby... The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the the way of peace. Preparation leads to an extraordinary visit. This is a great messianic prophecy that Zechariah gives us by the Holy Spirit. 
And in those days, it was just about to be filled in the coming of Mary's child, the Lord Jesus Christ. For ages and ages, God's people had waited in eager expectation for that coming Messiah. And in John's very day, that dream was about to come true. The light of heaven was about to overcome all the shadows that had existed since the gospel was first proclaimed in the garden. All those shadows would be cast out, and what had come once only in vague outlines was to be fleshed out in their full realities in Christ. The prophet Isaiah certainly knew this. In Isaiah 9, where he writes, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. There's Isaiah. Or also there's Balaam, knowing of this coming light, this one who was to come and visit us. And Balaam knew this all the way in the days of Moses, though dimly he knew this. Numbers 24, 15. Turn with me there, if you would. Numbers 24, Keep your finger in Luke. We'll look at Balaam's final oracle. Numbers 24, verse 15. Balaam's final oracle. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is open. The oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him now, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A what? A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter, a king, shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab, and break down all the sons of Sheth. And then verse 19. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. That Balaam saw a coming star and Zechariah saw the rising sun is not to say that one was right and the other's prophecy was wrong. Rather, It's that the light was coming always closer and closer in the person of Jesus. Balaam, far off in the days of Moses, only sees a dim star. But in the day of Zechariah, when Advent is here, the light becomes the rising sun. It was becoming closer and closer and brighter and brighter until it was right there as the glorious sun. Friends, we worship the one who was long expected. And with him comes the great shining light. No longer do we rest in the shadows given to Old Testament believers. But by faith, we live entirely in the gospel's realities. And by faith, we expect these realities to get even clearer still. When our Savior will come on the clouds in the great day of revelation, in His second advent. No longer do we look for the earthly shadows in bulls and goats and temples in Jerusalem, but we look past these shadows as each of them points us forward to the coming Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And if the light of Jesus had only fulfilled one or two of these shadows, we might say it was an accident or coincidence. But that the Lord Jesus came and fulfilled every single shadow. Friends, that is a plan. And it was worked out for the church of Jesus Christ, for Israel of true believers. There's light that comes to prepared hearts. And with this light also comes our feet being led in the way of peace. If we had time this morning, I'd give you an entire sermon just on verses 68 through 75 of Zechariah's song. And in that sermon, I would show you that Christ's coming at Advent was nothing other than a direct act of war. His Advent at the manger, just as it will be at His second Advent on the clouds, was a deliberate offensive against the worldly forces and powers of darkness that would deny Christ and His hand of authority. Advent is a time of war. Regardless of what Hallmark would tell you, Advent is a time of war. And Zechariah demonstrates this in the first part of his song. When he points everything towards, everything leads up to verses 71 and 74. When he describes the Lord's visit as a time when all enemies will be overturned. Zechariah leads up to enemies... And then he pans out again to peace. It points to war against God's enemies. And it's only once the enemies have been vanquished that the song can end on a note of peace in verse 79. To the church of believers, the thought of the manger is indeed a thing of peace. And rightly, that carol belongs to us. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Or else, how silently, how silently, the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of His heaven. Only in the church is Advent rightly a time for celebration. And it's there that only we may relish in Advent's blessings given from heaven. It is toward peace that Advent leads us to God with each other. But to the world, there is only Advent's brutal knowledge of war as Christ comes in that shaking power of revelation in order to redeem His own and to put His enemies as His footstool. And George Frederick Handel understood this so well, quoting from Revelation 11 in his Hallelujah Chorus. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. Advent is a time of war against the sin of the world. As the seed of the woman continues to do battle with the seed of the serpent. But to the church receiving salvation, there's the great peace that was won for her. So that even when we put on our full armor the church still wears on her feet the shoes that are the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So we can expect 
some sad moments this season then. Some of us will have neighbors or friends or family members who do not know the peace that has visited us in Advent. And so we'll watch as they turn to all sorts of shams that will look like a comfort to them. But only by the Spirit. As we gather around this pulpit and at this table, will true lasting peace ever be found? As Christ has won the final victory over our enemies. And now He only waits for that great day of our salvation when He will come to consummate, to finish all His work. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sin release us. Let us find our rest in Thee. By Thine own eternal Spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By Thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to Thy glorious throne. Friends, John was a son to make the Savior famous. He came to prepare the Lord's ways in the knowledge of salvation. He did it because His mission was steeped in God's tender heart of mercy for us. And the result of John's work means light and peace to rest upon Christ's church. John had an enviable position, being so closely situated to the ministry of our Lord Jesus. And yet, our situation is no less enviable and glorious. We have just as great a position to behold and to rejoice in. Divine grace has been won for us. The Lord has given Himself for us and for our children. And grace has been won for all the nations who will believe on His name. So let us rejoice deeply in this grace as this season continues. But let us also remain mindful of our own mission, which is to make our Savior famous. And let us carry our mission to wherever there's still that need for worship and delight in our great and glorious God. The mission continues. The first Noel, the angels did say, was to certain poor shepherds in fields as they lay. Brothers and sisters, a joyous Noel to you, and born is King Jesus, the King of Israel. Amen. Pray with me. Lord God, Father in heaven, You have showed Yourself to us in the most profound way. You have sent Your own Son to come into this world in the lowliness of a manger in order to face the shame of the cross. And by Your great grace, You did not leave Him in His shame, but You raised Him up and exalted Him in Your highest heaven. And Lord, by that work, by that life, You have taken us who were once rebels against You. 
And you have transformed us, Lord, into your own children. By your gospel, you've adopted us, made us brothers and sisters to each other, fellow heirs with Christ. And so we thank you and we praise you for this profound visit that you had given to us. And even as we continue our worship this morning, we ask that your spirit would visit us as we come to the table of the Lord. As we eat this bread and drink from this cup, Lord, may your grace be communicated to us. May we see something of that body of Christ which was broken for us and the blood of Christ which was shed for us. Lord, may we savor that. May we delight in it. May it be to our great satisfaction. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our precious Lord and Savior. And all of God's people said, Amen.